If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? This is the question that we have been asking ourselves over the past month. We've been looking honestly at our lives and at our actions to see how they square up and align with the faith we profess. How closely are we following Jesus? When people look at us, do they see a follower of Christ? We've been doing this through looking at Wesley's three rules for Christian living. Do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. Well, to be fair, we've only looked at the first two. We talked about how the first step in providing evidence that you are indeed a Christian is to resolve to do no harm, even as you live in a harmful world. In fact, choosing to add no more harm to the world than is already there might be the most important step in virtuous life, leading a virtuous life. The second step was doing good. The second step was doing positive things in the world. And when we think about it, our world provides ample opportunity to do good. The key is simply committing to and being intentional about taking action. At the end of last week, we wrote down some steps that we would take to intentionally do good throughout the week. How do we do with those? Like this? <laughs> this week, we are going to tackle the most confusingly worded one. Attend to the ordinances of God. Yes, I have to say it in that voice because it, it sounds so positively Shakespearean. Perhaps because it came out of Shakespearean England. Anyways, uh, the first two are written not in like English English, uh, but in real English, and are kind of self-explanatory. Attend to the ordinances of God needs a bit of unpacking, a bit of interpretation, a bit of explanation. Bishop Reuben Job wrote a book on Wesley's three rules, and he revised the final one to be stay in love with God. He talked about how this final rule was about doing things that kept us connected to, growing with, and loving God. Worship, prayer, Bible study, holy conversation. And that's a fine way of looking at it. We should continue growing in love and relationship with God. And God has given us ways to do that. And certainly coming to worship, praying, doing Bible study, these are things that would provide evidence to convict you of being a Christian. And the holy ordinances as such are the means of grace. They are the sacraments. They are holy communion, baptism, prayer, scripture, etc. So he's not wrong. But this morning, I want us to look at it a different way. Not a better way, just another way. Before we had a notion of a holy ordinance, before the ordinances of the church were communion and baptism, etc., ordinances existed. An ordinance, any of you who live in an HOA will know, is an order or decree made by someone in authority. Baptism and communion are called the, ordinances, the holy ordinances because Jesus commanded us to do them. Attend to the ordinances of God, therefore, could easily be restated 
to mean attend to the decrees of God. Or put even plainer, do what God told you to do. Throughout the Old Testament and in the Gospels, we see people of faith wrestling with the question of what it is that God has told us to do. God gave the Ten Commandments, and then God gave the law filled with 613 decrees. And for centuries, Jewish scribes, authorities, priests, teachers of the law debated how those laws fit into the myriad scenarios that life presented you with. That's too many whiffs. My apologies. Ancient Israelites ordered their lives around following the law. On Friday, ancient Israelites would cook enough food to last them for two days because you couldn't work on the Sabbath and cooking was work. However, real life presents problems and situations that static law can't always adjudicate. A popular question of interpretation in ancient times was what do you do if your donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath? Oh no, it's right. Because to rescue your donkey would be work and that would violate the Sabbath. But to leave your donkey in the ditch would violate the statutes of the law that pertain to humane treatment of animals. So rabbis and priests and teachers of the law and scribes argued over what a faithful Jew should do in the case of a donkey falling in the ditch on a Sabbath. This was not hypothetical. Some of these things actually happened and people were very, very concerned about how precisely I should handle that sort of situation. Throughout scripture, we see arguments like this taking place. Teachers of the law asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus' followers are accused of working on the Sabbath because they're walking through a field plucking grain, and that was considered work. Jesus is accused of working on the Sabbath because a sick person comes to Jesus on the Sabbath, and Jesus heals him. And he is chastised for working on the Sabbath. The prophets call out the ways that the people and the king violate God's law. There is this constant tension throughout the Bible between what it is that God requires of us. This question is explicitly taken up by the prophet Micah. There is a verse in Micah that basically asks the question, what are the ordinances of God? What are the decrees of God? What does God require of us? And it is to that we shall now turn. We are in Micah 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The last verse of this passage is the most well-known, and it's where we'll spend most of our time today. Uh, but I want to look at how we get there. The passage begins with God leveling charges against Israel. And this is done in the form and fashion of a courtroom scene. God says that Israel has been missing the mark, and he is going to prosecute the case. Then God lists all that God has done for Israel which has, from the beginning, been the basis of Israel's faithfulness to God. They are to follow the law because of what God has done for them. God brought them out of slavery in Israel. God brought them to the Promised Land. God kept them safe, though enemies thought their destruction. For what God did with Balak and Balaam, Come to church after Easter. It's an awesome story. I promise you, you're going to love it. Features a talking donkey. I've already said too much. But really, come back. End of commercial. Anyways, God has brought the people Israel out of a horrible state and blessed them with peace and prosperity. And Israel has not responded in kind. The speaker wants to make things right. The speaker wants to respond in a manner that befits God's actions. And so the speaker says, With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I bow down? Shall I come with burnt offerings? Will God be pleased if I come with the... And the uh, sorry. Uh, so there's burnt offerings, but then he goes into the thousand rams and the rivers of olive oil, which is the speaker saying, Shall I not come with just the prescribed sacrifice, but with an abundance of, with more than what is required for um, forgiveness for my sins? You see, for centuries, if you transgressed the law, you offered the sacrifice that the law required. You brought some birds. You brought a ram. You brought a horn of olive oil. And the priests did their thing, and presto changeo, you're right with God. The speaker here is not proposing only offering the called-for sacrifice. The speaker is offering to do more. But that is not what's required. That is not what God asked for. That is not the ordinance of God for Micah. Micah changes it up. Micah flips the script. What does the Lord require of you? He has told you, O mortal, what are the ordinances of God? What has God told us to do? Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. So, when we ask the question, what are the ordinances of God? Let's look at the three things that God has told us to do. Act justly. The first thing Micah tells us, or God tells us through Micah, is that we are to act justly. We are to treat others equally. We are to work to make sure that everyone has what they need in order to thrive. Oftentimes in society, we think that some people should receive more than others. Some people deserve better than others. 
Attending to the ordinances of God means working towards ensuring that all people have their basic needs met and can have a life and a future. Now Christians have been doing this for centuries. I'm going to read an excerpt from David Bentley Hart's book, Atheist Delusions. In this book, Hart systematically looks at the arguments the new atheist movement makes against the Christian faith and shows how their arguments are caricatures that do not square with the historical record. It's a good book. In the section I'm going to quote, Hart is talking about how the earliest Christians set up public hospitals long before a public hospital was ever a thing. He writes, There was, after all, a long tradition of Christian monastic hospitals for the destitute and dying, going back to the days of Constantine and stretching from the Syrian and Byzantine East to the western fringes of Christendom, a tradition that had no real precedent in pagan society. St. Ephraim the Syrian, when the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, established hospitals open to all who were afflicted in a time when uh, if, if plague came, you got as far away from the plagued people as possible because you didn't want to get the plague yourself. This person set up a hospital to put him in contact with the plagued people in order to, to help make them better. Sorry, that was not part of the book. That was just me talking. St. Basil the Great founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers, whom he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. Again, in ancient times, you stayed away from lepers because you didn't want to get leprosy. And here it is, this Christian, this leader in the church, nursing lepers with his own hands. Unheard of. Also not in the book, just me talking. Uh, St. Benedict of Nursia opened a free infirmary at Monte Cassino and made the care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome, the Christian noblewomen and scholar St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe and despite her wealth and position, often ventured out into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. This was in 399. St. John Chrysostom, while Patriarch of Constantinople, one of the highest positions you could have in the church in 400, used his influence to fund several such institutions in the city and in the diaconiae, that's how you pronounce that word, of Constantinople, for centuries, many rich members of the laity labored to care for the poor and ill, bathing the sick, ministering to their needs, assisting them with alms. During the Middle Ages, the Benedictines alone were responsible for more than 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. The 12th century was particularly remarkable in this regard, as if 2,000 wasn't enough, especially wherever the Knights of St. John, the Hospitallers, were active. At Montpelier in 1145, for example, the great hospital of the Holy Spirit was founded, soon becoming a center of medical training. Oh yeah, Christians started the first med school. And in 1221 of Montpelier's faculty and medicine. Um, and in addition to medical care, these hospitals provided food for the hungry, cared for widows and orphans, and distributed alms to all who came in need. In the ancient world, it was just assumed that the people who, uh, that there were different parts of society and some parts were correctly entitled to receive certain privileges, medical treatment being one of them, and other people were not. If you could not afford medical treatment, it was because you didn't deserve medical treatment. Then Christians come along and insisted that if God is the God of all, 
And if Christ is all in all, then everyone should have access to a doctor and to medicine if they were sick. This is an unheard of notion in ancient culture. This idea was so simple and yet so mind-blowing that it turned the world upside down and now there are public hospitals all over the world. What systemic injustice exists in our community and has existed for too long? What basic unfairness have we tolerated for far too long? How can you work? How can you work to bring about more justice in our neighborhoods? Love mercy. The next ordinance found in Micah is to love mercy. There's a distinct difference between justice and mercy. Put simply, mercy is giving a hungry person a sandwich. Justice is asking why he is hungry in the first place. While we are called to act justly, we as Christians are also called to love mercy. We are called to love, doing dis concrete acts of service to persons who are in need. We are called to feed the hungry. We are called to clothe the naked. We are called to love the lonely. We are called to visit the sick and those in prison. We are called to reach out in love and service to the least, the lost, and the left out. The concept of mercy has made drastic strides in the last century. Charles Matthews uh, examines this in his book, The Republic of Grace. He writes, since 9-11, so he wrote this book in the mid-2000s. Um, since 9-11, probably the most shocking single event for humans was the Indian Ocean tsunami of December 26, 2004, that killed at least a quarter million people and left millions destitute. Some commentators compared the responses to the tsunami to the responses to the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 and noted that in 2004, unlike 1755, relatively little commentary, commentary addressed the implications of the tsunami for our thinking about the existence of a good God. But such discussions, or the absence thereof, were not the most interesting thing about the worldwide response to the tsunami. The most interesting thing was the worldwide response itself. Unlike Lisbon, the tsunami did not primarily provoke speculative philosophical discussions and those only in Europe. It provoked food drives and massive financial donations from around the world. The question most asked was not, what kind of God can allow this suffering? But, what human errors permitted this suffering, and how can we act in the presence to alleviate it? And how can we act in the future to ensure it doesn't happen again? The difference in response is not because people in the 18th century were more callous or parochial than we are today. The root of the difference lay in the relative power of humans before the onslaught of nature. In the 18th century, natural disasters would largely provoke wonder and awe because that was the only possible response for humans to have for them. But today, we can act in response to them, and if we cannot prevent them, we will at least try to repair them. This paragraph has stuck with me since the first time I read it nearly a decade ago. For untold millennia, humans bowed before the power of nature and speculated what nature's wrath meant about the gods or God. Within the last century, that entire thinking has flipped. 
I think back to what we experienced this fall. The massive outpouring of support, money, sub and supplies that have been sent to hurricane victims in Houston, Florida, and the Caribbean. Companies like Budweiser sending free water. We don't simply, when, when these tragedies happen, we don't look and say how unfortunate those people are to live in the wrong place at the wrong time and thank God I'm not one of them. Instead we say that should never happen to anyone. No one's home should be flooded. No one should lose their home because of nature. And what can I do to help that person out? This is an amazing shift in how we respond in mercy. What needs can we meet in our community? What can you do for a person in your neighborhood this week? Walk humbly with God. The last ordinance of God is to walk humbly with God. There are people who devote their lives to doing good for others and won't stop letting you know it. They tout everything they have done, all the sacrifices they have made. There's a show on NBC called The Good Place, uh, and there's a character in that show who uh, spent her life doing fundraisers and working with charities and in her fictional life, um, raised over $60 billion for different charities. But she did it for the wrong reasons. She wanted to become a philanthropic celebrity. She wanted to raise enough money for causes so that her parents would love her. She was not walking humbly with God. Contrast that fictional character to the countless saints in any church who commit their time to helping other people and go through life gently and quietly. Those who go into a church on a Friday afternoon to put together snack packs for school children on free and reduced lunch because they know there's no food at home for those children in the pantry and what food they have for the weekend is going home in their backpack on a Friday. Or those who go and serve at a homeless ministry on a weeknight because they know this might be the only warm meal and theirs might be the only smile that person sees that week. Or those who carry food cards or bus fare with them in their cars and let, so in case they encounter someone on the street, they can ensure that that person can get where they need to go or have a hot meal that day. And who do so not because they want to lord their goodness over others, but because of an unconditional love for their fellow human being. Love others. Really and concretely. And do so humbly. And in loving others humbly, you will walk humbly with your God. If we did all that, if we reached out in acts of justice and mercy and did so quietly and humbly, there would be those who would give sure testimony that yes, indeed, we are Christians. So now we spent the last four weeks looking at how our lives can provide more evidence of the faith we profess. Do no harm. Do good. Do what God says to do. Now the time has come.
for you all to put this stuff into action. What will you do? What next steps will you take? I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about it. So in addition to the ways that hopefully God has been speaking to you, I want to give you another opportunity uh, to respond to this series in a real and concrete way. If you take a look at your lifeline, uh, one of the things in there is this half sheet that says praying for the teachers of our school, Forest Park High School. We have the names of every teacher at Forest Park High School in this back. Partially in response to this sermon series on how we can more and more live into our faith. Partially as a response to more and more tragedies happening in schools. and as a way to take spiritual ownership over this school. Because we are the church that meets in this school. This is our school. We want to start praying for the teachers that work here, that educate students here, that form the brains and characters of students in our community. So we have this bag. And if you are willing we ask that you would draw a name or a few names out of the bag. You are welcome to take more than one. Uh, but taking a name is a commitment. It's a commitment to pray for this teacher for at least a week. Um, now, I don't know personally many teachers here at Forest Park High School, and I don't know if you all know personally any teachers. Um, so it can be, well, what do we pray for? Um, if I don't know them, what do I pray for? On this little sheet are some ideas of things you can pray for. Um, pray that they can teach effectively and clearly. Pray that they can uh, impart um, some measure of character. Pray they don't get any mean emails from parents. That never happens, I know. That, that, um, pray that they can have a safe and happy day. 
So we'll have this, we have this bag, um, and I'm going to pass it around. Um, take as many names as you feel led to. Um, and we will begin to pray that God's Spirit would be here in real ways. One of the things Jesus told us to do was pray. Um, another thing Jesus told us to do was when we come together that we share in this meal.